Bridging the gap between the eye test and the analytics, it's the Staff and Graph Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Dory and Ian Tullock. Welcome to the Staff and Graph Podcast, a day late edition thanks to Canadian Thanksgiving. How's it going, Ian? I'm doing great. Had lots of turkey. Had some nice political talk with uh, my parents over some dinner. Hey, it went well because unlike a lot of people, we respect other people's you know opinions and try to get into a discussion. That's allowed? I, I try to do that on this show because sometimes you have the objectively wrong opinion on <laughs> Connor Brown scoring 25 goals for the Ottawa Senators and... But you know what? We have a we have a back and forth discussion, and we can get some places, which I hope is the goal today. But we'll see. You know who is going to score twenty five goals this year? James Neal. I was going to say Frederick Gauthier, but uh, mm. yeah, James Neal's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> you know who's not going to score twenty five goals this year? Milan Lucic. Oh, like in twenty five fights though, <laughs> and as Calgary Mita will tell you, that's worth just as much as a goal. Oh, absolutely, a hundred percent. So now that we've brought up those two players, I think we've teased it on Twitter. We're going to talk about players who are miscast, not just this year, but in previous years and sort of how that impacts them. And then when they get moved to a new team or moved to a new role, how that likely positively impacts the player. So should we begin? And just like all the time, I like combining the video with the numbers. I feel like this is an interesting aspect of looking at a player's numbers because if a player is... Let's say a player has a particular skill set. They're very good at certain things, but they're put in a situation where they have to do the opposite of that. Their numbers aren't going to look very good, especially if they're playing alongside line mates who don't complement their skill sets against competition they probably shouldn't be facing. But then if you put them in a situation that is going to benefit their skill sets, all of a sudden their numbers are going to look, look a lot better. They're going to look a lot better on the ice. So... We'll break down a few examples of players who fit that mold and maybe players who are currently in a bad situation who would look better in a different situation. Okay, so should we start with the Neil Lucic sort of topic? Because I feel like that's a singular trade that covers two players that were, I, in my opinion, grossly miscast last season. James Neal's most common linemates last year were Mark Jankowski and Sam Bennett. Now, here's the thing. He was tried higher in the lineup, and it didn't go so well in a smaller sample. And if you watched James Neal at all last year for Calgary, didn't didn't look right. He wasn't driving play. He wasn't doing a lot of things that you would like to see from a player that you paid big bucks for. But when he's playing alongside players who can't get him the puck in scoring positions, you're not going to take advantage of his shot, which at this point in his career, I think is his only real plus skill as a player. In terms of uh, an ability he has that's much better than average at the NHL level. But when you put him on a power play with Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl, he's going to score a lot of goals. Now, is is that a situation he should be in? Is he, is he at the point in his career where he should be playing top six minutes and he should be getting first unit power play time? I think that's a bit debatable. But if you put a player in that situation, they're almost certainly going to succeed, right? Well, I think it's important to point out that James Neal is not the type of player that plays on your fourth line, right? That's He's miscast as a fourth line player because that's not what he does. We You just said likely his best and only very positive attribute at this stage in his career is his ability to score. Now, he can only score when he gets the puck in certain positions because he can't really get it there himself anymore. And playing on a fourth line, you're probably not going to get a whole lot of that. 
now technically a third line with uh, Sam Bennett. I'm not sure which they were categorized as in uh, in Calgary. He was scratched a few games, though. I mean, he deserved to be scratched. But when you're miscast, you're more likely to be scratched. So now let's say, okay, so I think it's no secret that Edmonton very badly needed wingers, right? And they just needed a, someone who could put the puck in the net if Connor McDavid put it on his tape. Because that's literally what Connor McDavid does. James Neal, what's your best attribute? Putting the puck in the net when someone puts it on my tape. Perfect, come on down. You are now playing with Connor McDavid. And what does he have, eight goals now? I think he leads the league still, yeah. On pace to win the, in the Rocket Richard. <laughs> and obviously, this that doesn't make James Neal a first-line player. But he is a fit for the skill set that he has and the skill set of the player that he's playing with to maximize both of what they're good at, right? Connor McDavid can score all by himself. We've seen that. But he also needs someone for when he's getting swarmed. He's got to be able to get the puck to them, and they've got to be able to be dangerous enough to score. And that's not Zach Cassian, and it's not Milan Lucic when he was in Ottawa. At least James Neal... He can get up and down the ice, right? So I think he's better fit for that role than Lucic was. Is Milan Lucic a fit anywhere right now, other than in like a bottom six tough guy role? And it's funny, for $1 million on a one-year deal, you wouldn't mind that. It's just on Lucic's deal, it's obviously not providing positive value. Oh, I think he's one of those players where you absolutely would love him on your team. Like, he adds the sandpaper but he can still contribute positively but no more than in a fourth line role like he needs to be sheltered you can't face him against opposing top sixes a top pairing he just can't handle that anymore he used to be able to he used to be a beast in boston oh my god that was he was such a unique player because he was such a bear to handle in terms of how rough and tough he was but then he could also put the puck in the net and in a playoff series, he was probably one of your least favorite players to go up against on the ice. And you combine that with scoring ability, it's just, it was really frustrating to deal with. It was part of what made Boston such an annoying team to face. Lucic, Marchand, Chara in a playoff series, you hated them. Well, Lucic is, when I think of the Boston Bruins, he's the epitome of a Boston Bruin, right? He can score, he's in your face, but he can also beat the living crap out of you, right? Whereas now he's a bit later in his career, He's sort of lost the skill side of it and being able to skate the way he was. And I get why Edmonton signed him because they thought he'd create space for McDavid. But at the end of the day, in order to create space for McDavid, you have to be able to somewhat keep up with him, right? And you have to be enough of a threat on your own that you demand the presence of a defending player. Milan Is James Neal a much better skater than Milan Lucic? I mean, I feel like neither of them get around they're the They're not, that well. but at least James Neal is dangerous enough offensively that you have to defend against him. You could quite literally leave Lucic alone, and you kind of knew he wasn't as dangerous, but you can't leave James Neal alone because if McDavid finds him... It's the in the NBA of a, of a guy who can't shoot a three-pointer. You can, you just literally don't guard them. You just leave them alone. Whereas James Neal, the spacing of the defense, you actually have to respect his wrist shot from the slot. Exactly. So I think that that's what opens up more space for McDavid. It's not about how quickly Neil can skate. It's the fact that he demands a defensive presence in the way that Zach Cassian and Milan Lucic and others just don't because they don't have the shot, that, that dangerous weapon that needs to be respected. So I think Neil was sort of miscast in Calgary and now he's sort of in a better spot in Edmonton because they're playing him to a skill set. 
Same with Lucic, right? He can't play with McDavid. He can't play in a top six. But if you play him as sort of your bottom three, goes out there, provides energy, like that's a good role for him. But to expect him to play with McDavid or in a top six role and contribute 20, 25 goals a season, I mean, it's just not realistic, at least not from what I see. Is there any other player we really wanted to touch on, whether it was in a positive way, where they're filling in a, a new role that actually fits their skill set, or do we want to talk about some players who maybe are not being used the way they should based on the skills that they have? Well, what about Nino Niederreiter? Because, like, he was basically being sat in Minnesota, and then he goes to Carolina and is a pretty important part of their run to the conference final. I never understood why he never got more minutes in Minnesota because every time he was on the ice, Minnesota was out chancing and out shooting the crap out of the opposition. And you can point to little individual things he was doing well, whether it was winning puck battles or making smart passes. Or I find that he's just such a puck hound in the offensive zone. When there's a shot or a rebound or a loose puck in the corner, he just tends to win every puck battle. But Nino Niederreiter, when he's on the ice, your team's out shooting and out chancing the opposition, yet he was used infrequently in Minnesota down the stretch there, and then Carolina puts him on their top line with their top playmaker, and all of a sudden, he's generating way more shots and way more scoring chances and way more goals. So I'm not sure if he's this first-line goal scorer that we've seen. none of us were shocked. Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I expected him to score at that rate. No, but I did expect him to to drive the play more. I think, to be fair, Nita Ryder wasn't... He was miscast in two ways in Minnesota. That type of player is not conducive to the system that Minnesota was playing. Like, their defense first. I mean, for crying out loud. Like, look at how they play. Their defense first, which is not Nino Niederreiter. And he's not the most offensively responsible player, which Minnesota loves. So, of course, he's not going to be trusted, which then demotes you further down the lineup. So he wasn't being used in the offensive role, in the top six role, and he wasn't in a system that allowed him to thrive. He goes to Carolina where Rod Brindamore screams possession and loves the scoring chances, loves fast pace, creates scoring chances, and then he gets put in a role where he's allowed to do that as well. It's twofold, right? You say he's not defensively responsible, but I don't know. If, if the puck's in the offensive end, I feel like that's pretty good defense. Yeah, it doesn't really matter at that point. <laughs> I love watching Carolina play these days. Oh, it's just the, puck, so the puck's just in the offensive zone all day. And then there's a shot on net from Dougie Hamilton, and then you have players like Nino Niederreiter swarming the rebounds. Ev- Evgeny Svechnikov. Is, or wait, is it Andre? It's Andre, I always yeah. get the, I always get them mixed up, which is funny. because Andre's Evgeny's the good one. Good. Yeah, Evgeny, is he in the NHL? I don't know. Uh, I think he's in Grand Rapids recovering because he had like a knee surgery last year. Uh, he's, he's probably better off there than on the Red Wings, to be honest. I mean, they're not great right now, but they're rebuilding and they've got pieces coming, so. But yeah, Nino Niederreiter, you can just see the fit alongside of Sebastian Ajo. Players like that, when you play, when you go from playing with someone like Miko Koivu, who is phenomenal defensively, but can't complete a pass in the offensive zone, to Sebastian Ajo, who's a special player, your production is going to increase as a winger. You're going to get more scoring opportunities from better areas. And we've seen that from Niederreiter, and he looks like a 25-plus goal scorer. So, I don't know. I just feel like when you use a player alongside a center who can't get them the puck, they're not going to produce well offensively. When you put them alongside a center who can get them the puck, they are going to produce uh, offensively. And we see this all the time in research right now where quality of line mates 
is your biggest indicator of how well you're going to do. Other than your actual on-ice results, if I just look at who you're playing with, I can get a very good idea of whether or not you're going to be producing and whether or not you're going to be playing more on offense or more on defense. If you're playing with Sebastian Ajo, you're going to be playing more on offense. If you're playing with... Who's a really bad player? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Uh, Victor Rask. If you're playing with Victor Rask, you'd be spending more of your time in the defensive zone. So yeah, that's... I feel like that's a, a fair way of looking at players. And when we see, hmm, if you're playing alongside some really weak forwards, yeah, that's not going to be a position to succeed. But if you're playing alongside some very strong forwards, you're going to get some more chances to produce offensively. Right. So now that we've... I think those are like a couple good starting points. I think one that a lot of people disagreed on and now are starting to come around on. I mean, the stats people have agreed on this for years, but sort of the media and potentially some hockey people haven't been as quick to come around. Um, should we dive in on Rasmus Ristolainen? I wasn't sure where you were going with that. I wasn't sure if you're going to bring up like Brent Seabrook or Jay Bomeister. Oh, we could I'm... go any direction with that. But I think Ristolainen's probably the poster boy for... Because at least Seabrook had good years. Like in the in the Blackhawks heyday, he was him and Keith were terrific. Ristolainen, I feel like he's never really hit the potential that everyone seems to think is there. I think the problem with Ristolainen is that he was kind of thrown into a tr- into a, a tire fire in his rookie season well, that's and developed a lot of bad habits his first couple of years in the league. Did he come into the NHL as an 18-year-old or a 19-year-old? I believe he was 19 because he scored, I want to say, like the World Junior winning goal or something the year before. And he played in the AHL at age 18 and performed really well for an 18-year-old defenseman. Had all these skills that you can see when the puck's on his stick. Man, this guy is special in the offensive zone. But... For the longest time, he would back up in transition because he was used against top competition on a tanking Buffalo team. He'd flip the puck off the glass. And I'm not sure if this is a coaching issue, a development issue, a usage issue with the fact that when he was 19 and 20, he came into the league on the worst team in the league and was just getting shelled every shift. Oh my God, no, hang on. I So I just looked it up. He was drafted in 2013. He played... Exactly 34 games each in the AHL and NHL that year and has been in the NHL since. So he quite literally stepped into the NHL. He didn't go back to the NHL. As an 18-year-old, after doing really well in the AHL, they brought him up. He's basically been first pairing ever since. And the hard part with that is that he just wasn't ready for it. And that's okay. At 18, you're not supposed to be. Yeah, unless you're literally Rasmus Dahlin or Miro Heiskanen. And even then... If they'd waited until he was 19 or 20, used him in very offensive situations, you know, a sheltered second pairing with a very good defensive partner to help shelter him a bit defensively, gave him that top power play usage where he's phenomenal, I bet you his game would have progressed a little bit better. It kind of reminds me of what the Leafs did with Luke Shen. Like, they rushed him. it's different circumstances because Ristolainen has puck skills. Yeah, it's way different, but I'm talking about in terms of bringing an 18-year-old defenseman into your lineup when it was absolutely not necessary. Or, like, before he was ready. Or in a situation where he was not going to thrive. Exactly. Now, maybe he was never going to have good gap control. We've seen a lot of really good skating defensemen who have questionable gap control. Uh, Morgan Riley comes to mind. Victor Hedman, for a 6'6", dude... I don't yeah. like the way he controls his gaps. I just he don't could, like it. He could be a ton better with his gap. 
Yeah, yeah. Like, be more Pareko-ish, you know, with your gap. Man, that and guy's gap is really tight. Well, it's easy. When you're a phenomenal skater and you're 6'6", it shouldn't be hard. <laughs> but back to Ristolainen. The way he's used right now in Buffalo is just counterintuitive to his skill set. And I would argue that his skill set is a is a largely because of how he was used in his younger years and just the wrong habits were developed, whether that's through coaching or bringing him up too early. But what he is right now is a phenomenal offensive defenseman in the offensive zone who has some of the worst gap control in the league, bleeds a ton of shots, and just flat out isn't that great defensively, except when he's facing the cycle in the D zone. And I think that a lot of the times we tend to assume that that means you're good defensively. If you're good defensively, you shouldn't be giving up a lot of shots. And throughout his career, Ristolainen has. You have uh, yeah, Ra- that would be putting it lightly. They have Rasmus Dahlin on this team, who has been dominant ever since coming into the league at age 18. He can clearly handle, handle a tougher load. If you use Dahlin more against the top lines, and you use Ristolainen in an offensive zone situation, sheltered minutes, tons of power play time, then I think you're getting the most out of both players. But instead, they... Would you like to hear an alarming statistic? I'm really curious what this is going to be. Okay, so we're seven games into the season. Rasmus Ristolainen is averaging six more minutes of ice per game than Rasmus Dahlin. But why? <laughs> so Ristolainen is playing 24 and a half minutes, and Dahlin's out there for 18 and a half. All right, now the argument you'd bring up is, you know, penalty kill, power play, that, you know, a veteran defenseman would be better at those things. And uh, power... <laughs> the power, power play, play is not up for discussion. Well, Ristolainen's good on the power He's play. He's not You're Rasmus Dallin, though. Ah, I, I agree with that. Here's my <laughs> bigger problem. Uh, time on ice per game at 5-on-5. Five five. Rasmus uh, Ristolainen, 19 minutes, 21 seconds. Rasmus Dahlin, 14 minutes, 44 seconds. Oh my god. Those, those numbers need to be swapped. Literally. I would rather you play Dahlin none on specialty teams and he plays 20 minutes a night at even strength. Dahlin's one of those players who, at age 19, he's one of the best defensemen in the world. It's like when Drew Doughty came into the league. He's just already this amazing, and you should be giving him as many minutes as possible. I know that I just said that, hey, you don't want to throw a, a defenseman like Ristolainen into the flames if he can't handle it. But Darlene's proven that he can handle it. He's literally the sixth. So Darlene is the last in terms of uh, even strength time on ice. So He I, led the NHL in uh, zone exits, uh, I, I think, percentage last year. Or maybe it was second behind Sam Gerrard. So we can agree that Ristolainen is being miscast here. Still. And I just don't get it anymore because they have the horses now. They have some right-handed defensemen who can move the puck. Uh, Colin Miller and Henry Yokoharu look excellent. Uh, yeah. Is Brandon Montour hurt right now? I believe so, yes. Okay. Yes, he is. But you have three right-handed defensemen who can all move the puck, and you have Rasmus Dahlin, who's a unicorn. Who's a <laughs> six foot three, He's six foot four a unicorn. defenseman who has maybe the best puck skills of any defenseman in the NHL right now, other than maybe like an Eric Carlson. It's just... It's a generational talent who can dominate the opposition regardless of who he's facing, and you're not using him, and it's it's weird. I don't get it. Well, I would think, like, okay, he's young. We don't want to overuse him, but when you have options, and the same could go for Yoki Haru as well. Like he's not as good as Darlene, and he's still young, so obviously you maybe want to shelter him a little bit, but a guy like Colin Miller proved he could play. Jake McCabe, 
He could play Marco Scandella. I mean, probably a more a 4-5 type situation. I was going to say, if you're arguing for Marco Scandella in the top pairing, I don't know where oh, we are. We're not <laughs> doing that. But to me, like, Rasmus Dahlin should not be playing less than 20 minutes a night as a defenseman. Like, we yell and scream. I don't think he should be playing less than 25. I think he's that good. Like, in Toronto, they yell and scream about Austin Matthews, who is a forward playing less than 20 minutes a night. Could you imagine what the people in Buffalo must think about Rasmus Dahlin playing 18 minutes a night? Well, something about defensemen who are under the age of 20 named Rasmus not getting enough ice time. But, you know, that we'll save that for the end of the podcast. Uh, oh, God, I can't wait. I have a rant. Uh, oh, Ian's got a rant. You had one last week, so I, I'm going to bring one this week. But let's stick to defensemen who are miscast. Uh, Jay Bomeister still in the top pairing. Uh, what's up with that? He is. He leads St. Louis in five-on-five ice time other than Colton Pareko. And uh, guess what his shot share is at five-on-five? What percentage of the shots do you think Jay Bomeister is controlling when he's on the ice? Oh, it can't be good. It's less than 38%, and he's uh, second on the team in ice time. You might not want to do that. You might want to shelter this guy in a third pairing because... Like, he was great 10 years ago. He's and here's the thing, he, he's a perfect example of a guy who was, like had size, skating ability, puck moving ability, gap control. I really liked him, but it's just, it's not there anymore, and he's backing off a lot in transition, he's not moving the puck the same way he used to. They're, Shelter this dude. They're playing him these more than Alex Petrangelo at even strength? That's, that's a thing. That is definitely okay, a thing. Well, that is more concerning than the Dahlian situation. Because at least, like, Bomister, yes, he was great, but obviously as people age, I mean, it goes without saying. Like, you're not as good of a hockey player at 39 as you were at 24, right? Give the Scoring chances, uh, 30%. Controlling 30% of those scoring chances at 5-on-5. Five five. So, yeah. So, he's miscast in his role then. Completely. He's been miscast for the last few years. Yeah. And I think it's just a reputation thing. Is that maybe a Ristolainen with... thing, too? Both of them sort of are reputation? I think it's Brent Seabrook as well. Oh, yeah. We could go there, too. We could talk about Carl Alsner in the past. We could talk... Or, or present. I don't know. Is he getting minutes in Montreal? I, he's in the AHL. Oh, he is? Yeah. Okay, good. All right, because they finally realized that he wasn't what they thought he was. With Bo Meester, here's my problem with defensemen in general. If you're succeeding in your current usage and you're kicking the crap out of it, you need to turn up the difficulty settings a bit. It's like playing <laughs> NHL on like rookie mode. It's like, okay, this is too easy. If you're playing on like all Madden difficulty and you're getting crushed, it's time to turn down the difficulty a bit and see if we can find something that works a bit better. But for some reason... We just keep seeing players like Jay Bomeister get hemmed in their own defensive end and coaches keep going back to it. And I'm thinking, hey, Jay Bomeister might work on a sheltered third pairing alongside a puck mover. He might still be an NHL player, but not in the current role you're playing him in. And Rasmus Dahlien, yeah, he's kicking the crap out of second pairing usage. Guess what? should probably be getting first pairing usage. (laughs) Yeah, you might be a little bit better as a hockey team if Rasmus Dahlien was out there more. So... That's the thing with Jay Bomeister is that, you know, 10 years ago he was not miscast, but he has been for the last little bit. Brent Seabrook, I'm not even sure if he's an NHL defenseman anymore, yet he's getting top four minutes in Chicago. So No, he's not. 
Who else would be getting them? Let's look that up, too. I mean, you, you didn't think St. Louis it would be the case. I'm going to be very alarmed if this is the case. I could just, his name is Brent Seabrook. I don't see how else. Well, so would... I remember in the Blackhawks' heyday, like when they won their three cups, there's this one where Taves was, he was falling apart, coming unglued, and Seabrook goes over to the penalty box, and at this point it was the Keith Seabrook pairing that everyone was just amazed by. And uh, he goes over, I guess, says what he says to him, and Taves comes back, and he's a monster for the rest of the playoffs. So when you have a guy that, that can do that kind of thing, obviously important, but you can't have him in the current state of his hockey ability playing 18 and a half minutes a night. He plays more than Rasmus Dahlin. I think a lot of that's on the PK, though, or maybe power play, because he's, he's only getting 15 and a half at even strength. Here, here's the way that Chicago's minutes are broken down on defense, and it's hard because Connor Murphy's played three games while some of the other defensemen have played four. Keith it's, and Murphy is the top pairing, yeah. which is not great. You don't want Connor Murphy on your top pairing, but is what it is. And then Eric Gustafson, Ole Matta, and Brent Seabrook are all similar in the amount of minutes they get. Don't they have Calvin DeHaan? And then who's... I was going to say, I'm trying... I'm, I have a minutes cutoff here. Maybe that's why I can't find Calvin DeHaan. Calvin DeHaan averages 17 minutes a night, all strengths. Yeah, but... And he's only played two games. He's played two games. He's played two games. That's why I couldn't find him. I had a minutes cutoff. All right, so yeah, their defense, it's it's difficult trying to figure out who the bottom pairing is. They play their second and third pair about the same, give or take. Uh, how many of the shots do you think Brent Seabrook's controlling at five on five? Oh, it can't be good. It's got to be, what, 35%? It's less. It is uh, thir- 32 and change. Less than a third. So the opposition's getting two-thirds of the shots, over two-thirds of the scoring chances. Uh, the goals are 50-50 right now, but that's that's not going to last. So... Here's the hard part, is I'm bringing up defensemen who just might not be NHL players anymore in Brent Seabrook. And Jay Bomeister, I still think if you sheltered him on a third pair, maybe he still is something. We'll see. I think, yeah, if he was your sixth defenseman, I mean, it worked for St. Louis last year when they won the Stanley Cup. But you you need to shelter these guys. I get, like, they've had great careers. Well, Bomeister for sure is a Hall of Famer, I think. I might not get in right away, but I think he gets in. Oh, I hate the fact that we put in these, like, meh players into the Hall of Fame. See, I kind of agree. Like, I don't think there should be um, a certain amount that get in every year. It should be like baseball, where you have, like, there's a voting process, and you have to get 80% or whatever of the votes to get in. And so if one year we only have three people who get in, then we only have three people who get in. You know I'd I mean? like to see it where you need it. You need to have at least one MVP or one Art Ross or one Con Smythe Trophy to even be like considered. If you weren't the best player on your team at any given point, or if you weren't the top five player in the league, I don't understand what we're doing. But I guess we just like rewarding players who were good for a long time. Yeah, but then go I, back I and like look it. at like the Montreal teams of like the seventies. Like not all those guys won major awards, but you like. Every single one of them is a Hall of Famer. But there were like three or four teams who were actually good back then. The league's Fair. gotten a lot better. That, okay, so would you... Well, Joe Thornton's won. Hey, is he award. even a top 100 player of all time? Oh my god, that was so egregious. Him and Malkin. 101 and 102, baby. Yeah, really. <laughs> but what about... So, we're talking about guys who are miscast. I think 
Detroit's done a good job. So Justin Abdelkader was very miscast over the past few seasons. Like he can't be your top line center or even on your second line. It just cannot yeah, yeah, happen. Abdelkader's not a center, is he? He was so, at one point. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he's a winger, isn't he? I I saw him taking a bunch of faceoffs. I want to say it was like three Might years just ago. Be taking them on a strong side. I know Ooh, Darren yeah, that could be a point. That line right now. Um, but Detroit's actually done a really good job of giving guys like Anthony Mantha, Andreas Athanasiu, Dylan Larkin more of the responsibility, and they've moved Abdul Kader down. And of course, that contract is not great. But at least Abdul Kader's playing in a role now where he can contribute positively, and he's not getting shelled at least by the eye test, the way he was a few years ago, right? So I think that's a good example of a team who realized a player was miscast and made some adjustments to give other players some opportunity, which allowed Abdul Kader to play in a role more fitted for his skill set now. I know no one cares about Detroit, but Jacob De La Rose, Darren Helm, and Justin Abdelkader have been awesome this season. I don't they know what's really happening. Have been. And they've been facing like tough competition. They've been used in like that shutdown role, you know, the the checking line kind of thing, so that their star players, which is can perfect go for some... all of them. But I would imagine that they would be getting hemmed in the defensive zone, and you you kind of live with it, so that your star players can get some better usage. But they've been out shooting and out chancing good players. I don't know how long it's going to last, but hey. If you're a Detroit fan, this is something where you're probably going, man, this is great. This is sweet. And then Anthony up, Mantha boys. just casually scored four goals in a game. That's got to be something to get excited about. He's going to score... Th- you think he gets to 40? or I, I, 35, I think, is a safe bet. I'm not sure if 40 is... I think he... Uh, I think unless he gets hurt, I think he hits 30, no problem. I think he probably, like you, sits around 35. You're not going to go out in a limb and say 40? No, I will not. 40 is so hard to get to. James Neal, 40 goals. Book it. This month. <laughs> He's on pace. I mean, okay. <laughs> do your no, thing. 25. You know, he can do 30. If he's playing with McDavid, I think Neal can get 30. Oh, yeah, I do too. Well, considering he's already got, what, eight? It's ridiculous. <laughs> By the way, you brought up Abdulkader, who was uh, much maligned a few years ago and now seems to be having a, a nice kind of... I don't know if breakout year is the right way, but kind of a nice redemption kind of season. Yeah, I would say redemption is a good way to put it. We need to talk about Jonathan Drouin. That was a really nice moment he had in Montreal the other night. I'm not sure if you saw that. Oh, I saw that, and it made me so happy. And it's funny, because I'm supposed to hate Montreal. We're we're both Leafs fans, and Montreal fans, I genuinely do hate you. Don't worry. Oh, see, I don't don't genuinely hate the Habs, (laughs) and it might be because of some other things, but... No, I love Montreal. It's a great They're so entertaining to watch now. And their fans are electric. And hearing Drouet in the post-game interview talk about how much he loves the city of Montreal and the fans giving him a standing ovation. I'm just happy. I'm happy when players in their hometowns perform well. So here's the thing with that is everyone makes a big deal of, oh, like a Toronto boy coming home, like Jason Spencer, for example, coming home and what, what it would be if a guy like Mitch Marner won the cup with Toronto. I feel like it is an entirely different level if a French Canadian like goes home and is successful in Montreal. It's just remember a different Vincent level Le of love. Remember nixed the trade to Montreal? And do you remember the players who were going to be a part of that deal, but Le Cavalier had no interest in waiving his no trade to play for Montreal? Yes, I do remember that. It's like Carey Price, Pacioretty. Could you imagine and... if the Habs had traded Carey Price away? Oh, God. 
But I mean, can I you just, imagine if they traded away Ryan McDonough for Scott Gomez? Oh my god. But just like think about that for a second. Everyone makes a big deal about guys coming home to Toronto and let's face it, it probably is a bit harder to play in Toronto than it is some of the other cities, but Montreal has a TMZ dedicated to their team. So their media and in two languages no less. It was so nice to see Drew Rand. They're brutal who, in French. They're brutal in oh French. I love God. it. I love it. It's kind of what makes, you know, sports cr- like so crazy and why we have such a big passion for it. But man, they're not nice in French. They they go after players when they don't perform. So when they acquired Drew in, it was like whether he's a center or not, it's square peg round hole kind of thing. And they've been trying to do this because they've been missing a center for God knows how long. They refuse to do worth, it. It has worked with Max Domi, strangely enough. Exactly. So they they said, oh, we're going to do it with him, even though he probably hasn't played center since, I don't know, Junior? London Knights, Don Mills Flyers days. So they've been trying and trying and trying. And I can't even tell you how many articles I've read saying that Duran is on the trade block and this, that, and the other. And so for him to come out and perform like that and then get the the reception from the crowd that he got... It was, it was really nice to see. And here's the thing with Drew. I feel like you need to accept him for what he is. Everyone wants him to be better than Sergachev. And I'm not sure if that's a fair comparable at this point. I know that Drew had the high point totals in junior. I mean, I remember at the time, I I thought that he might have been the better player than McKinnon just based on what he'd done at that level. But I was, I was so, so wrong. But he is a phenomenal playmaker. And he's excellent with the puck on his stick. And without the puck on his stick... He's not that great, and you're probably just going to have to accept that. But if you play him alongside some players who can help hide the deficiencies in his game defensively, if you play him with some guys who can finish and don't put him up there against top competition, you have the Philip Deneau line and Brendan Gallagher and Thomas Tatar going up against top competition, that'll open up some more space for Drouin to do his thing in transition. And when you do that, he can have lots of success. Agreed. It's just the... The expectations, I think, that are put on players likely leads to them being miscast a little bit, and it's definitely true for Duran. Um, so now, when he... Speaking of centers who were supposed to be a first-line center for their team, how about Tyler Bozak? Oh, dear. Yeah. Well, he looked mighty good on the third line. Nassim Kadri never got to play with Phil Kessel because Tyler Bozak was the perfect first-line center who was used in a defensive role alongside Phil Kessel and JVR. For the Randy Carlisle Toronto Maple Leafs, that was a time. Listen, Randy Carlisle played Jay McClement for like 22 minutes one night. Hey, hey, that's uh, sixth in Selkie voting in 2013, Jay McClement, that you're talking about. So You're joking. That actually happened. Look it up. Okay, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> um, all right, but you bring up a good point with Bozak because you could also have the opposite way where I think Kadri last year in Toronto... He's better than a third-line center. Look what he's doing in Colorado now. So it's almost like you have two, I mean, Austin Matthews and John Tavares are significantly better centermen than Nazem Kadri is. But that doesn't mean that Nazem Kadri isn't a good second-line center. He's going to be in Colorado, and he's going to produce. Like, he will be a solid second-line center for them. Also, I know that we try not to go too Leafs heavy on this, but I feel like Tyler Bozak's a perfect example of under Randy Carlisle, used in a defensive specialist role alongside two players who don't play defense. Yeah, that didn't go well, believe it or not. Nope, then did not. Mike Babcock has Tyler Bozak for like a game or two and goes, yeah, whoa, I need to shelter the piss out of this guy. <laughs> <laughs> and he puts him in the offensive zone with JVR. 
and those two do really well. Then both Bozak and JVR go to different teams the year afterwards. JVR gets used like a regular top six forward in Philadelphia, falls off a cliff at five on five, and is just getting outshot and outchanced and hemmed in the defensive zone because you could see the deficiencies in his game defensively, but Babcock tried to hide those by using him in an offensive role. Tyler Bozak, as much as I love him, isn't out-shooting and out-chancing players at 5-on-5 five five anymore because he isn't as sheltered. Some of these guys just really, really struggle defensively, and it helps to shelter them. But when you put Phil Kessel on a third line with Carl Hagelin, and they're going out against third pairings, and they get to terrorize <laughs> Roman... Well, remember when they got to terrorize Roman Polak in the Stanley Cup final? Oh, that was so entertaining. It was just it was a two-on-one every shift. And, and yeah, that's a, that's a position to succeed for a player. So... You can have these skill sets that work well in certain situations, but don't work well in other situations. And if you look at JVR's RAPM or his, you know, his his isolated threat in those years where Randy Carlisle coached him, they would have been terrible. If you looked at him in the years where Babcock coached them, they would have been great. And then if you look at him at the following years where they were put into a situ- situation where maybe it wasn't the best use of their skills in St. Louis or in Philadelphia, now they look poor again. Is that the player oscillating between being good and then bad and then good again? No, it's, it's how they were used. And if you use a player in the way that they should be and you put them in a situation to succeed, usually they'll succeed. If you put them in a situation to fail... It's often a self a self fulfilling prophecy. So, I don't know. It's that that's how I feel about those in particular players. But you can look at someone like Jamie Ben in Dallas when he's asked to run a line by himself. It doesn't go as well at this point in his career. I don't think he's a guy who can run his own line. But if you have someone like Tyler Sagan running a line or Joe Pavelski helping out in that regard, Ben's still a pretty phenomenal offensive talent. I think he's going to produce this year. I would agree. I think that. You know, he he had his Art Ross season, which was, I mean, it was a terrific season he had. But like you said, as you get older, it becomes more difficult to drive a line, right? I mean, you're asking 32, 33, 34-year-olds in a young man's league to drive a line. Realistically, there's only really a few guys who who could do that with success. And this is going to come Hall as of famers. no surprise, but their names are like Sidney Crosby and Patrice Bergeron. And they're yeah, like first a- ballot actual, Hall of Famers. Act- and not like Jay Bomeister first ballot Hall of Famer, but like an actual first ballot Hall of Famer. Oh my god. Like, first of all, you could make the argument that they could probably just waive the waiting period for Crosby. Um, By the way, Patrice Bergeron, not a top 100 player? Isn't he the best defensive player of the last decade? I would say it's, for me, it's between him and Datsuk. Uh, Yuri, well, Yuri Lettinen was not the last decade, so... He was the decade before, but I would say that, yeah, um, if you could build your team around a, a player like Patrice Bergeron, you're you're in pretty good business because he's not a generational talent in the way that Crosby or McDavid is. But if you happen to get a player like that, holy moly, like that's really valuable. He's all three like situations: penalty kill, power play, even strength. He's out there for the last two minutes, whether you're winning or losing. It's it's one of those things where if you need a guy you know you can depend on, that's it. This is why I couldn't understand why Buffalo got so little for Ryan O'Reilly, because I thought he was a very similar player. Maybe not quite as good as Bergeron, but in that same mold. You know, Sean Couturier too. I'm just thinking... 
these are exactly the players you want to build your team around. A number one center you can use in every situation. Yeah, he's going to need a skilled player to play alongside him to help bring some of that offense. But when it comes to puck battles and defensive play, you're not going to find a much better player in the league. And that has a lot of value. So I I was arguing that Ryan O'Reilly was a top 20 player in the league at the time he was traded. I know a lot of people are calling me crazy, but he won the Conn Smythe a year later. I think that was more of a a function of... He had vocalized his um, desire to leave Buffalo and the fact that I think he said like he didn't like hockey anymore playing in Buffalo. So that that'll diminish your trade value. But I agree like you need to get more than Buffalo got. Um, I get depressed every time I cross at the border too. to be fair, heading towards Buffalo. (laughs) Oh, my God. I'm sorry. Buffalo fans are going to hate me. I'm sorry. It's actually not that bad of a city. Yeah, it is not that bad. Um, but I feel like that's Buffalo in a nutshell. Fair <laughs> Welcome enough. to Buffalo. Not that bad. Should we quickly touch <laughs> on what happens to a player when they go from being grossly miscast to then being put in their role um, and kind of the mental impact that could have on them and how that would be- manifest itself in the play that they exhibit? I think it's the quote-unquote breakout season that we see from players. It's, oh, wow, this player must have really changed his game over the off season and... A lot of the times it's no, it's just being used the way he probably should have been all this time. Can you think of any good examples? I tried to think of like Kessel, you know, I f- JVR. I feel like when, there's when an Babcock argument to be made that Cody CC might be a candidate for oh, this. Oh, for right? Christ's sake, he's getting like 24 minutes okay, a night alongside another player without gap control. That's not a position to succeed. No, I'm saying this. In Ottawa, like, we can agree Cody CC is not a number one defenseman, right? In Ottawa, he was miscast there. Now... He comes to Toronto, where he's not going to be asked to be a number one defenseman. You could make the argument... Yeah, he's asked to be a number two right now. Well, hang on. You could make the the argument that when Travis Dermott comes back, he's their fifth best defenseman. If that. If that. So, if they... And this is a big if. Let's say you take any... By the way, are we including Rasmus Sandin, who's clearly better than him? We'll get to Rasmus Sandin, don't you worry. Um, If the Leafs play... Let's say even remove Cody CC from it. You have a defenseman who's likely suited for a four or five role playing in a number one role, obviously not going very well. Then you put him in a situation where let's say he is playing number five minutes. What do you think the impact is? And I feel like he would actually look good because at the offensive zone blue line, he actually makes plays with the puck that are surprisingly impressive. Now, his gap control is atrocious, and I wrote about this. So is Morgan Riley's. And you play both those guys against the Kucherov, Stamkos, Braden Point line, you're going to have a bad time. Right, but if you play them against, like, Andre Palat or Matthew Joseph... With a lot of ozone starts, you know, it's going to go a lot better. And I don't understand why he hasn't been used that way yet. Maybe they're just hoping they can tread water until Travis Dermott gets back. I, I think he's that's wearing what a non-contact, or he's wearing a contact jersey now. So I would assume he's he's practicing. Zach Hyman's going to be back soon. It's going to be fun for Leafs fans. No, but, but what I'm saying is, is remove Cody CC from it. You have a guy who clearly can't play number one defense, no matter who it is, right? And now let's say you decide you're going to move him. Take Brent Seabrook for example. Clearly can't play number two minutes, but if he can play number six minutes and you put him in that role, do you not think that he probably mentally feels a lot less pressure, doesn't squeeze the stick as tight, and can is more relaxed when he's making plays, when he doesn't have to make them against the Patrick Canes and 
whomever, the Connor McDavid's of the world. Like, it's probably a lot easier. A quick way to, to hurt a player's confidence with bad gap control is to put him against the best forwards in the world who can really take advantage of it, you know? That's just... I, I still don't understand why Riley and CeCe are facing such tough competition when the Leafs have Jake Muzzin on their roster, who is clearly their best 5-5 five and five defenseman at this point. I mean, Travis Dermott's hurt. Uh, Rasmus Sandin's really good. But Riley's not that great at 5-on-5, five five, especially defensively. Playing with CeCe, not a good idea. But you know what? Since we're talking Leafs, I need to go into my Rasmus Sandin rant. I'm just going to go right into yeah, it. Yeah, so we had a question that says, which rookie probably needs more? time in juniors of the AHL and my argument I mean I wrote something about it about why Rasmus Sandin likely needs more time in the AHL I don't think he needs much more time but I think he needs more time and uh Ian disagrees and was very upset when Sandin got sent down and I think you should tell everyone why that is Ian I other than Jake Muzzin I thought he was Toronto's second best defenseman this year at five on five thought he was awesome Thought he was clearly an NHL player, making good plays with the puck, composure under pressure, smart little plays that even NHL veterans don't make. But he was getting 12 minutes a night. And the argument was, well, would you rather him get 12 minutes a night in the NHL or 25 minutes a night in the AHL? I'd rather him not get 12 minutes in the NHL. I'd rather you play him. He's good. Uh, you can say, oh, well, you know, the minutes just weren't there for him. They, they should be. Play him more. Play him more. Oh, well, he was never going to get penalty kill time. You know who shouldn't be playing on the penalty kill? Morgan Riley. Play Sandine there instead. Give him some reps on the second unit penalty kill. Give him more shifts at five on five. When you're losing, you need to be playing him very often because he's going to help get into the offensive zone. I don't understand why we've just accepted the fact that it's not possible to give a 19-year-old more minutes when they're thriving. He had one bad game against Detroit, and they sent him down right after it. What do you think that's going to do for a player's confidence? I just, I think I thought that was ridiculous. I understood it in that, hey, if Mike Babcock's not going to give him the minutes, you got to send him down. But we shouldn't just accept the fact that a player can't get more minutes because they're 19. I think that's a ridiculous way to look at things in 2019. Defensemen are succeeding earlier than they ever have when you look at the Miro Haskinens, the Kale McCars, the Rasmus Dahlins of the world. Sandin's not on that level offensively, but when it comes to his play driving ability at 5-on-5, five five, I don't think he's far behind. I think there's an argument to be made that at 5-on-5, five five, he might be Toronto's second or third best defenseman after Jake Muzzin and Morgan Riley. Tyson Berry's phenomenal offensively, but he doesn't have the gap control of Rasmus Sandin, doesn't have the composure under pressure of Rasmus Sandin. Sandin's really good. He's better than most of Toronto's defensemen, and he got sent down because his coach was unwilling to play him. I'm sorry, I'm not okay with that reasoning. I don't like it. That's okay. End of rant. All right. That, what? I mean... <laughs> That was a lot to t- digest there. <laughs> uh, I'm sure that you have like some points on things that he can improve in his game, and I agree. Like There are things that a lot of players can improve. Well, yeah, I wrote a 1,500-word you... piece on it. <laughs> it was a good piece. I like your writing. I, just, I, I, I don't understand why you can't develop at the NHL level. So here's my... Um, I, do I think Rasmus Sandin is one of Toronto's best six defensemen? Yes, I do. Now... He's one of their best four best defensemen right now. Very clearly. Well, yeah, especially with Travis Dermott not in the lineup. With Travis Dermott injured. Yes, I was going to say he's not better Travis, with Travis Dermott. Well, even the second Travis Dermott gets back, he's probably better until Dermott you know, adjusts to NHL games. Okay, so here's my thing. is He proved he could play in the 5-6 role. I loved him when he played with Justin Hall. I thought that pair was excellent. My only hesitation is, okay, now he's shown he can play there. If we move him up 
to a top four role. Let's say he's going to play with Morgan Riley because I would, to be fair, I would argue Rasmus Sandin's gap control might be the best on the team. I mean, you could make the argument with Jake Muzzin, but it's significantly better than Cody Cece's. It's way better than Morgan Riley's and it's way better than Tyson Berry's. So that are we including Travis Dermott in this? Who no. arguably has some of the best gaff control in the league? <laughs> I'm not because he's not playing. I'm talking about who played the first six games for the Leafs. And this is my point. I'm like, yo, you're gonna you're gonna send this guy down even though he might be your best transitional defender. So if we move, so the next the logical or what you would think would happen is he would get moved up to play top four. I'll explain a scenario to you and then you tell me what you think the impact is. He moves up. He's playing with Morgan Riley now. He's facing tougher competition, quite obviously. He's playing more minutes a night. Let's say it doesn't go well because he's very clearly good as a 5'6 in the NHL right now, but hasn't developed certain other skills like net front presence and making just the simple plays as opposed to overcomplicating things. And now he's hesitant to make those plays, which leads to him being hesitant in general with the puck. That leads to him being afraid to make mistakes. And now that leads to him getting sat on the bench. Like Okay, counter-argument. Sending a player down after one bad game, there's a way to make a player not afraid of his, of making mistakes. Uh, see, I think him playing under Sheldon Keefe is good because Mike Babcock made it very clear that he wants him to penalty kill and the Leafs in all likelihood are going to need him to play on the power play. Right now, he's not going to get that. next year after they... Why would they need him to play on the power play? Because they're going to lose Tyson Berry. Okay. And they're likely going to lose Morgan Riley if he keeps who producing. Cares, who cares about your second pairing? or so Who cares about your second unit power play defenseman? That's like the easiest role in the in the world. I think the more important part of it is Mike Babcock wants him to be a key penalty killer. And that's something you have to learn. Right? So... Why can't you learn it at the NHL level on a second Because pair? you're going to get torched and that costs games. Trust me, you're going to get torched as you learn. He got torched in the AHL on the penalty kill when he first started, and now he's starting to take steps. He's going to go down in the AHL. He's going to be their number one penalty killer. The same with Timothy Lilligren. They're going to throw them out there every penalty kill. So they're going to be forced into developing that side of it so that they, when they do come up, because both of them inevitably will. What if they come up together? Exactly, in like and they could both months. be a pairing. Um they could penalty kill, and now the Leafs have solved their penalty killing problem internally. But you can't rush that. Penalty killing and developing, I talked about it in the article, but developing different techniques and finding what works for you in order to gain position at the net front so that you're not giving away goals in front of the net. Like is, leveraging your weight as a way to like box out a player. Especially especially when you're um, Sandine size. You're not a big hulking human being like Jake Muzzin is. You have to discover what does and doesn't work for you. And when you're doing that at the NHL level, that's very difficult to do. Do it against the AHL's most skilled players, which he will do. And then once you've proven that you can do it there, because that's a skill that takes a couple of years to learn. Um, you come up. I don't up, know. Was Drew Doughty that great at age 19? Was Eric Carlson that great at age 19? No, but they were 19? so good offensively that it didn't matter. Rasmus Sandin's so good at 5-on-5 five five that I don't think it matters. It, it, okay, well, first of all, look at his coach. 
this is the argument we come down to. We say, oh, we, Sandin couldn't possibly stay in the NHL because he has a stubborn coach. Let's get mad at the stubborn coach for being stubborn. See, I don't... That's not okay. This is where we'll disagree. I don't think Sandin is... I think he's very close to being top four ready. I don't think he's quite there yet. And I think he's better off served playing in all situations in the AHL until such time that the Leafs need I him think because they be will need than, him. I think he might be better than Morgan Riley at 5-on-5 five five today. Oh, okay, I'll disagree with you on that. but Because he can play defense. Well, I think... <laughs> I feel like you fix Riley's gap control, which based on the fact that his skating is as good as it is... It's been six years. I which don't think it's I'm kind fixed. of wondering why it hasn't been addressed. It, like, I'm sorry, when you've been the this, this, this same player, at least in transition defense for the last... But gap control is like one of the easiest things to fix. Like, I don't understand why it hasn't skater. been addressed. Well, then why isn't Chris Russell's been addressed? Why isn't Rasmus Oh, because Chris Russell is a, is a significantly worse skater than Morgan Riley is. Chris Russell's a pretty good skater. Mm. Why hasn't Nikita Zaitsev's been fixed? Why hasn't Victor Hedman's been fixed? There are a lot of excellent skating defensemen. Victor just... Hedman's so big that I don't really think it's an issue. I think it's a psychological thing. I think when you see a player skating at you full tilt you're inclined to skate backwards. You're inclined to back up. Whereas you need to really, like, I don't know what the right word is, but, like, it needs to be drilled into you from an early age that you need to be aggressive. And you can see it in the way that someone like Travis Dermott plays in transition. So it's so funny that you say that because, obviously, uh, with my hockey teams, the number one thing we say is you had better be within four feet, essentially a stick length, of someone by the time they cross the blue line. And you better yeah, be attacking them If you're like 10 feet back of a dude when they get in the blue line, I don't want you on the ice against anyone's good players because that's way too much space for a really good player to take advantage of you. Yeah, you need to be, that's our rule, is basically you need to be within a stick length. And there are a lot of Leafs who aren't. No, they're not within two stick lengths sometimes. And it's both CeCe and Riley who are like backed up onto the top of the circle. And I'm thinking, what are you doing? Well, you even Tyson Berry is tricking. like not great. Tyson Berry's interesting because he's so good with the puck on his stick. So should we tease next week? Because I feel like next week's topic I'm just as excited about as I was today. Yeah, next week's topic is interesting. Yeah, go for it. I'll let you sell it here. So we had someone ask us about driving play and explain what that is, both the eye test and by the numbers. So what numbers can show play drivers? We thought that instead of a mailbag question that that podcast question sort of deserved a podcast of its own so next week what we're going to do is we're going to explain both things so what driving play to the eye means and what numbers can show you what driving play is we're also going to cover who are some of the nhl's best play drivers so and there are different ways you can drive play and then there are some guys who you watch and you think oh that guy must be driving play and then he's not so maybe why is that the case exactly or why so. are some guys that you think are bad actually driving play well what are what are some of the aspects there that that lead to it yep and i can't wait for all of the leaf fans that listen to this podcast to yell at ian when he talks about william nylander because he's a lot better than everyone gives him credit for so or someone like kevin fiala who has a similar play style to william nylander but the results haven't been there the last couple years he's been getting outshot no chance why is that the case exactly so that'll be next week's episode we'll be back to tuesday next week um we just took a bit of a, a Thanksgiving day because family time's important and taking time away from hockey is extremely important. So make sure that uh, 
you're doing that, and I guess we'll see you next week. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Yes, from You us. too, Rasmus Sandian. Oh, my God. All right. <laughs> have a great week, everyone. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Staff and Graph podcast. You can check out Rachel Dory's work at The First Pass, and Ian Tullock's written work can be found at The Athletic and The Leafs Geeks podcast on whatever platform you're listening to this. Also, be sure to follow these nerds on Twitter at Rachel Dory and at Ian Graff.